Welcome back, you guys. It's week 49 of Creative Come Follow Me for the New Testament. And this week, we get to head into Revelation. I know, just like me, you probably have your own trepidations about this book because it's so rich in symbolism, which means it's so hard to understand at times. But I got to tell you, this year of study for me felt different than any other time I've studied the book of Revelation. I think it's because we just came from a whole year of studying through the lens of people like John. We got to study John's gospel and hear him talk about the Last Supper and the Savior's words. We got to read the epistles of John where he testifies of the Savior and his closeness. And something about feeling like I knew the heart of John better from my deep study there helped Revelation feel more relatable. Because basically this is a visionary experience that happens for John. It's a lot like Lehi's vision or Ezekiel or Daniel. There's those visionary experiences where people are invited, where prophets are invited to see and understand things on a big eternal sphere. It just gets intimidating for us because we don't have that kind of sight all the time. But there were three big things that helped me this week that I thought I would lob your way and then hopefully they'll help you as well. The first one, I was reading a book from Michael Wilcox, where he, in the introductory area, he has a whole book about the book of Revelation, and I just really love his teaching style. But he mentioned Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Basically, what he was alluding to is he said the problem that Nicodemus ran into is he tried to take things so literally. Remember, he was trying to understand these beautiful, full-bodied words of the Savior, but he couldn't. You know, he was the one that asked, like, do I go back into my mother's womb? Like he, he doesn't, he didn't understand. I think when we view revelations with a very revelation, with a very literal lens, we end up being a little bit like Nicodemus where the savior is trying to teach us something richer and we're trying to confine it to mortal words and we'll struggle. The same thing happened with the woman at the well. Remember when the Savior's trying to teach her about living water and she's like, you don't even have a bucket. <laughs> so I just think you want to kind of step back a little bit and don't try to decode every single sign and symbol. Just try to understand what the book is teaching you about the Savior. That perspective helped me. Every time I got into the weeds on what something meant, I was like, I think this is, I'm getting in the Nicodemus zone and I've got to zoom out a little bit. The second thing that helped me is I was reading in my Book of Mormon study this week. I just happened to be in the prophecies of Samuel the Lamanite, and he teaches about the purpose of signs. This is in the notes if you want to go find it, but I loved his perspective on why the Lord teaches this way, um, why there are signs, why, why the Lord even revealed all of this to John on the Isle of Patmos. And I think it's the same motivation that you see from Samuel. Basically what he said is the Lord is trying to give you knowledge. He wants you to see transparently what the future holds. The book of Revelation is a story about Jesus Christ being the victor and that that's how things are going to play out. And I feel like what John's trying to help us see is like things are already very clear and you get to choose. The Lord won't force you into either option, but let me tell you how the story is going to play out. So ultimately, I feel like the book of Revelation is not so much about seeing the future ahead of time as much as it is seeing transparently the works and plans of God, and then having the opportunity to choose. To me, the book of Revelation is about agency, having the knowledge and the wisdom to say, I'm going to make this choice. Um, that helped me in some sticky spots of study this week. The third thing is, remember that the feeling you have as you study these words is one of humility, and humility is a blessing. So I was just listening the day before yesterday to, I think it's Elder Koch is his name. He's the one that talked about, he went to his workplace with his family in the car and the guy, the guard at the gate wouldn't let him in because he didn't have his ID badge and how 
that humbling process taught him a lot about humility. And I just think that's what happens when you approach a book like this. What you, I felt like what I came away with is this stance of humility because I don't understand it all because I can't find all the answers. I found myself turning to the Lord more. I prayed for the help of the spirit more. I stopped searching a thousand sources and just said, like, help me understand what does this mean and how does it apply for me? And that stance of humility actually helped me see things more clearly. I think I learned more directly from the spirit this week than I have in many other weeks because there simply wasn't another way to learn. So embrace the humility you feel and realize that that's a way for the spirit to have fertile soil to plant little seeds of truth. And it just takes time for those seeds to grow. You guys, what you find in the book of revelation is kind of similar to what you find in the temple. You find rich symbolism that has lots of layers of learning. So if this is your first time studying it, just expect to, you know, understand at a certain level and know that every time you go back, you'll get richer and deeper understandings as it applies to your life. But no matter where you are on that spectrum of understanding this book, I think you're going to really enjoy this week of study. There's, there's, pertinent, helpful, hopeful information about the Savior and about why we're here. And I just think you're going to love it. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes. It's time to get started. In chapter one, John's going to sort of set up this visionary experience. He tells you where he is and what was going on at the time and primarily who this revelation came from. In fact, you see that right up front in verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, talking about John the beloved. He is on the Isle of Patmos. He's sort of in exile. You get the feeling people don't quite know what to do with him. He'll eventually get off this aisle, but for now he is sort of in isolation and he has this beautiful visionary experience. And so he wants us to know really clearly the source of that, this knowledge that it all comes from the savior, Jesus Christ. And then he encourages you to dive in. So if you look in verse three, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. I really like those guideposts. I, this word blessed is the same word that you see like in the Beatitudes. And it doesn't just mean you'll feel good or you'll be happy. There, there's richer meaning behind it. You can go in the notes and learn more about that word, but the, it, it implies a kind of divine happiness, a felicity, a, a, a happiness that comes after exerting your best efforts. That kind of happiness comes as you study and understand. I just think what he's trying to help us see is that you need to do a little bit at a time. <laughs> at first, you're going to just read. And then over the course of reading it again and again, you'll start to hear. For me, that's sort of what happened to me. At first I read and I felt like the words were swimming on the page. And then the more I came back and prayed and asked for help, then the more I could see things or almost hear guidance that maybe wasn't even in the words themselves. That I felt is where things got richer for me. Now, when I take it to the next level and I start to keep the guidance that the spirit's been prompting me as I've been studying, that's when blessedness begins. I think when you start to feel the joy that comes from keeping these guidelines of John, then you start to feel the peace that can come. So I love that beginning. And then he talks about the savior and how he is everlasting. One of the things that gets kind of tricky about the book of revelation is time is a little bit fluid. It's hard to tell if John is in the present talking about the present, or sometimes he's going to talk about things that were pre-mortal, but then at the same time, they sound like things have already happened. Like it gets a little bit murky. What I think is 
comforting about that is it's kind of like we talked about in the past with, I think it was Elder Uchtdorf who made the comment that if you could understand all the things of God in your mortal state, there wouldn't be much to worship. I think you have to understand that the, that time to God is different. And I think these revelatory experiences like with Lehi and Ezekiel and Daniel, and they are, time is a little bit fluid. So you got to keep that in mind as you study. The way he describes it in his version four is he says, grace be unto you and peace from him, which is, which was, and which is to come. That's He's testifying that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And also talking about how in this vision, you're going to get a piece of all of those. So just don't try to put, don't try to put mortal limits on an immortal God. Just let things roll. The other thing I love is how he refers to the atonement of the Savior right in the beginning, in verse five. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. When John has this incredible revelatory experience and sees things that are hard for the mortal mind to comprehend, what is most important for him to teach us is this helped me see the Savior even more clearly. Remember, John already has a testimony of the Savior. He was with him and knew him. He already honors the gift of the atonement. And after this incredible vision, he just sees that more vibrantly than he did in the past. I, I think it's empowering to know that that's his witness coming out. It's almost like that simplicity that comes on the other side of complexity, right? That he had that testimony before this revelation. And now after all of this learning, he has that simple testimony still that all of this rests on the shoulders of the Savior who saved us. And I love that. And then he teaches about the Savior's titles. So in eight, I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. This is his witness, right? This is, um, he is, now, sometimes I think we read that Alpha and Omega and you almost picture like bookends squeezing a book, you know, kind of like the ones behind me. But really, I think, I think it was Elder Holland that taught me this most profoundly is he said, he is the beginning. He was with the father in the beginning and he is the ending and all of those climactic scenes that will come. But he is absolutely every book in the middle. <laughs> he is throughout. In fact, one of the things I loved about Revelation this time is you felt like John was trying to help us see that God is in the now, always. He is not a God who set things in motion and then just sits back and watches them play out. He is a God who is diligently caring for his children every single day in the process. He has a plan and he has hopes for them and he is, his, his hands are on their, his creations. I just think that's John's witness. When you flip page, you see that John's imprisoned when he writes this and he talks about what happened. I love the way he phrases it. it's in 10. He says, I was in the spirit of the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. There is this calling out to John, which must've been remarkable given the fact that he's kind of in exile and isolation. I don't know how many people he comes across in a day, but because he on this holy day is choosing to be close to the spirit, revelation can come. And I think there's something in that for me. That was one of those things where I thought, I think it's something I need to do better <laughs> that on his day, on the Sabbath, I need to make space and time for revelation to come. I think John exemplified that for us. And then he talks about what this voice encourages him to do. His work, like almost all of these great revelatory experiences begin with a work that a prophet needs to do. John's work will be to write down this revelation and to share it with these seven churches. 
And this is one of those places where it's hard to know if this is a symbol or if it's literal, but basically he's going to write to seven big congregations in the Asia area, like Turkey kind of area. And the implication I think is that these are hubs and that as he shares this revelation with those hubs, the word will spread to all the parts of the church. Seven means complete, uh, usually in symbolism. So I think it's, it's intended for the whole church and his, his method is to send it out. I thought the same thing as I was watching the Light the World campaign unroll or unfold in New York. Did you guys see? My parents are serving a mission in New York City, so they happen to be in Times Square when that big Light the World event happened. And I just think it's kind of the same idea, right? It's this opportunity to share goodness and light in a certain location that we know will then trickle out to the whole world. That's Times Square. And I think that's what these seven churches are as well. So that's what he talks about in 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, if you go over to verse 20 in the same chapter, you can see that those seven golden candlesticks represent the seven churches. I just like this tied in with like the worlds. I think this is exactly what we're supposed to be and do. You know, the Savior himself invited us to be a city set on a hill and a light that people look towards and then come to the true source of light, this reflective quality that he invites us to have a part of. I love that visual of being a congregation that is a candlestick. Now, they didn't have candles or, you know, candlesticks back then. That's a King James translation, but they did have lamps like the menorah that we saw in the tabernacle. And that's his invitation. He's saying, be a light to others. And so he talks about those seven cities. He also talks about the servants that are coming. So if you look in 13, and in the midst of those seven candlesticks, one like unto the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and hairs were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire and his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. Okay, there's so many things in this verse that I love, but basically he's trying to describe the radiance of the Savior, his luminescent quality. I, don't, I think the fact that he can't find a word to fit tells you something about the divinity that he is seeing. He's trying to give you as many close metaphors as he can come up with, all these things that are vibrantly white um, to help you understand. What I love is what we studied about white light. Remember when we did this as an object lesson and we combined the three different primary light colors and it created white light? That's what I think he's referencing here. The Savior is this beautiful, radiant white that comes from a combination of every possible color. Sometimes I think, especially in the book of Revelation, you're going to hear things spoken of and they'll sound very white or clear or transparent, you know, like a sea of glass and things sound almost sterile. But I think you want to remember who it is we're talking about. He is the creator of all color and all majesty and all the variation in earth and the animals. And like, he is someone who takes all of those beautiful, rich things and combines them. You know, he is, he is the penultimate of all those things. So I, I love the idea of white light being something that is inclusive of all color. And you'll see a little bit of that in his description of the Savior. And then he talks about the stars in the Savior's hand. In 16, he says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. These seven stars, if you go in verse 20 again, you can see that these are his servants. These are people who are in probably leadership positions in the congregations, and he has them in his hand. Isn't that just like a sweet... 
sweet reference point. I think the very fact that he calls them stars teaches us something about their purpose, that they are something to navigate by. They guide you towards your destination. I think that's what good leaders in the church do. Parents are in that same spot. They get to guide people towards Jesus Christ. And so stars, I think, is a really lovely reference point for it. What's fascinating to me is John includes his reaction to this vision. (laughs) He could have skipped over this completely, and instead he deliberately inserts it, and you find it in 17. He says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. This gesture, I think, shows the heart of the Savior. And I think there's an intimacy to it. It feels a little bit to me like Mary outside of the tomb. You know, when the Savior comes close and he understands her pain and he There's this warmth there. I think that's what this is. It also reminds me of when we were studying about Paul in prison. Remember when the Savior comes to him in prison and comforts him and says, you're going to get to Rome? I don't even know if Paul was conscious at the time. If you watch the Bible video, it shows Paul kind of asleep and the Savior leans down and touches him and speaks peace. That's how I picture this scene playing out. In fact, I think I give you a link to that video in the notes because there's such warmth in this. You know, these grand visionary experiences that could make us like awestruck to the point where we just fall on the floor, the Savior reaches down and touches and says, you don't need to fear. I'm the same person you knew before. I will always be that person. Come and learn. I just think there's such warmth in in that gesture. And then he reminds him who he is and what he has, that he has the keys of hell and death. That's in 18. The reason I think this is important is there's a lot of kind of pop culture references that make it seem like Satan has the power of death. And how sometimes, you know, you watch, like my kids watched Hercules when they were little, and it kind of gives you the impression that somehow Satan has power over hell or something. That's not the case. The Savior has power over all. He holds all keys. And so he's reminding John who he is. He's asking him to write that down. He has the keys and the power over death and hell, meaning the first death, the physical death, and the spiritual death. Those are all held in his hand. And then 19, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. What I like about this is I think that was guidance for me. At least that's what I wrote in my margins. I'm supposed to, as I study these, read the words that are on the page and then assume that there are things which are to come that will make sense to me in time and things which shall be hereafter that will make sense to me even further down the road. To me, this is almost like seeing knowledge spread out. I think it helps me as I go to the temple to keep that same approach. You know, understand things, understand things as they are with the light knowledge you have so far, and then come back again and learn a little bit more and trust that there's always going to be more and more to learn. I feel like you get that vibe in Revelation 1. Chapters two and three focus on guidance to these specific hubs. Again, I don't think it was just for this one city. I think it's a way to teach many, many people. The same way we see in the Book of Mormon. So what came to mind as I was studying these, you know, the guidance that he gives to these different congregations is it felt a little bit like Alma and his sons. Remember in the Book of Mormon when Alma's towards the end of his life and so he talks to Helaman and he talks to Shiblon and he talks to Corianton and he gives them customized guidance. You see the same thing with Lehi when he's talking to his sons, like they, they talk about what they're doing well. They talk about where they 
hope they will improve. And often they'll talk about why it's worth it. Here are the blessings that are coming if you choose obedience, no matter where they are on the spectrum. You know, there was a big difference between Coriantin and Helaman, but both of them were encouraged to be stronger and better and more diligent in their faith. And I just think that's kind of the lens that helped me understand these chapters. In this first chapter, in chapter two, you're going to see four of the cities mentioned, and then some guideposts about what they're doing well, where they need some work, and the promised blessings that will come if they improve. And then in the next chapter, we'll see three more. But I liked kind of laying those cities out and seeing how they applied to me. I could relate to each and every city in a different way. And it almost felt to me as if I was sitting at the feet of somebody like Elma, and he was giving me customized guidance like, hey, Maria, here's some places you could work on. Here's some things you're doing great at, and here are the blessings that will come if you choose to act on the words I'm giving you. So that's what you're going to kind of see from John in chapter two. So first he's going to write to the people in Ephesus. So when he talks to people in Ephesus, he gives them praise first. He talks about their patience and their diligence. He's happy with what they've done so far. Remember how we talked about several times in the past that one of the ways the Savior teaches is by creating this sort of Oreo. <laughs> he has this like sandwich effect where he often will praise first. And then on the opposite end, there's this cushion of promise. And in the middle, there's a little bit of correction. And that's kind of what you're going to see in most of these verses. So he praises them for their diligence and then says, but there is something I'm concerned about. And that concern comes in four. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent. Do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. I just thought this was a really cool reference point. This idea of, at one point, you loved me so wholeheartedly. You know, it's the same thing you get if you go to a marriage counselor or something like that. This idea of, like, you need to rekindle that flame that you felt at the beginning, you go on your first date again, or do the things you did before when you, you thought so long and hard about what would be the perfect Christmas gift for each other, or you, you know, wrote notes to each other. It's the same kind of idea. He's saying, I want you to rekindle. That's why I really like this idea of do the first works. So one of the things I've noticed, interestingly, in that Institute class that I teach, um, oftentimes the YSAs who are in there who have served a mission will long to go back to their mission. And as I've talked to them, it's interesting to find out why they want to go back. You know, they'll want to go back to the Philippines or they'll want to go back to Russia or wherever they came from. And when you talk to them, it's not so much the place. It's not even so much the people that they taught, although that is a part of where their heart is. A big piece of it is they want to be the person they were there. They miss how they felt and the closeness to the spirit they felt. And somehow they think by stepping foot in Brazil or stepping foot in Russia, they will get that back again. What I love in this verse is he's saying, you don't need to go to Russia. You don't need to go to Brazil. You just need to go back to the first works. What are the things that helped you be that missionary? You prayed daily. You were in your scriptures constantly. You were serving constantly. If you go back to those first works, that flame of love and spirit that you felt as missionary will come back to your heart. That's what he's trying to help the saints in Ephesus understand is come back to me, come back to how you felt at the first so that we can rekindle this relationship again. I just think it's a, a beautiful guidepost. And then in seven, he says why it's going to be worth it. In seven, he says, he hath left an ear. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto churches. To him that overcometh will give, will I give to eat the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I just think, you know, that's a huge promise. He's basically saying, if you come back to where our relationship began and you rekindle it, and then you follow, you can make it all the way to the tree. I think it's kind of the same way 
when we're on the repentance path, we almost need to start a little further back along the iron rod. We need to grab hold in a place that is solid and secure with a lot of support around us, and then we work our way forward. I kind of think that's what he's referencing here. The second city is a little different. This is Smyrna. So it starts around verse 8. Smyrna is in a situation that's different than Ephesus. Ephesus is a thriving city. It's huge. It's got a lot going for it. The people in Smyrna are struggling with poverty. But what I love is the way the Savior sees them differently than they see themselves. He says in 9, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. That phrase I loved. There's a lot of times when I often will convince myself that I'm in poverty, not financial poverty, but like a a lack of time or a lack of energy or a lack of outlets for what I wish I could do, (laughs) whatever it is. And what often the spirit will remind me of is, oh, you are not without, you are rich. To have a testimony, to know who I am, to have a support network around me, to have callings and award that is so loving, like we are rich even if it's just the covenants and the relationship we have with God, we are rich. And that's what I think he's trying to remind these saints. It's just a beautiful passage. And then he says in 10, Fear none of those things which shall thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, and ye may be tried, and ye may have tri- tribulation ten days, and be thou, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Remember, Paul's, or it was not Paul, John is writing from prison, which means his words sound a little bit to me like Liberty Jail. It's this, you're going to have suffering for a small moment, but there is a light at the end of this tunnel and it is beaming out at you. So hold tight. That idea of 10 days is the same idea as like a little season. It just means a short amount of time. And so that's what he's trying to get them to do is like hold tight and trust that tribulation is temporary. Um, What he offers will last always. And you go a little further into the chapter, you see guidance to Pergamos. So it starts around verse 12. And he again praises them. He talks about what they're doing well, and then talks about where they need some some correction. So verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. What you learn in that verse is they've had some sort of martyrdom occur in their congregation. And I imagine that's going to increase over the course of time where people will be persecuted and even killed in the name of Christianity. And the fact that they're staying faithful around all that, he's praising them for it. The same way the saints who stayed faithful after the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram, I'm sure earned that same kind of love and praise from the Lord, that it's hard to stay solidly planted when you see the results of faith go so horribly wrong. And so he gives them praise for that. Then he talks about some of his concerns and he's going to reference Balaam. So we've talked about him in the past. He's a, a mixed character from the Old Testament. He's one that you can read in a positive light or you can read in a negative light depending on how you take it. But what I think is powerful is when you go in the footnotes and if you go in the notes, you can learn some more about this. But I think he's warning a little bit about speculation. So I think his guidance to them is hold tight to true doctrine. The same way when the elder Renlund that talked about Balaam and he basically, it was that talk that he was giving about avoiding speculation and that speculation and revelation are not the same. And this idea of like, it's kind of arrogant to assume that God should teach you things that to, to assume that he or demand revelation. He says it's arrogant and unproductive. So I just think that's his worry. What I love is his promise. So he says, basically, if you choose to just hold tight to what is actually revealed doctrine, if you hold tight to what is currently available to you and honor it, here's the blessing that comes. And that's what you see in 17. 
He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, a stone in the new name written, which no man knoweth, saying that he received it. What he promises is, if you hold tight to the revelation that is available right now, meaning I don't speculate, I don't demand revelation from prophets, I just teach truth as clearly as I can. The promises in time will receive the mysteries of God. We'll understand things because if we've shown diligence and obedience to what is revealed through prophets, then more can come. I think this is what President Nelson's been teaching us. You know, he says the mysteries of God are available. You just need to be diligent to what is available so far. Honor it, live it, and then more will come. Hidden manna comes your way. I love that idea of a stone. We learned about this in the Doctrine and Covenants as well, but this is basically a personal Urim and Thummim that he's promising those who are in the celestial kingdom, that you can know all things. You can see things clearly with eyes like a prophet at some future celestial date. So I just think it's worth it. He's saying, take what I've given through the authorized channels and use it, and then I can trust you with more. More will be coming. And I liked that guidance for this town. When you go into 18, you see another town mentioned. This is Thyatira, I think is how I would pronounce it. Um, and he has some interesting guidance for them as well. So basically, if you look in 18, he says, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. This is his praise for this town. He has, he sees all that they do. The very fact that he mentions that he sees it, I think is comforting. You know, that he knows each and every one of these towns. That's why I loved the very beginning when he talks about these candlesticks. And if I remember right, Joseph Smith, in the Joseph Smith translation, he talks about how the Savior's in the midst of those candlesticks. To me, that means he just knows them intimately. He's close. And you get that feel in these verses. But he has a warning for them as well. So if you look in 20, this warning is sort of similar to the last town. He's warning about a false prophetess that is rampant. He calls her Jezebel, but I'm guessing that's just a name that alludes to the Old Testament. Because remember Jezebel and Ahab, we studied her story. She's somebody who introduced basically the worship of Baal to the children of Israel. It derailed things in Israel for a long time. And she ends up falling out of window. Remember, remember that whole story? So I think that's his guidance as he's saying, don't listen to the words of false prophets or prophetesses stay solidly planted in what is true because the damage that will come is basically you're cutting yourself off from salvation so that you want to watch the JSTs on these verses because it can get, it sounds much harsher in what's on the page. It's, it's softened in the JST. But basically that's what he's teaching in 23. He talks about how you'll basically be damned. If you turn away from the savior, the children that follow after this prophetess or anyone who follows after those who teach anything contrary to Jesus Christ's salvation end up being spiritually damned that you, you can't access that salvation that's offered. And then he encourages you what to do instead. So in 25, but that which you have already hold fast till I come. And then he talks about the blessings that will come if you choose to hold fast. It's just a little hard in the King James Version. So again, this is a spot you want to go and look at the JST. This one I think is in the appendix. So you can go in the notes and I write it out for you. But I think this is a very clear allusion to the iron rod that those who hold fast, you know, it's kind of like Elder Bednar's talk where he talked about holding fast or catching hold, that it's different than just laying your hands on the rod. And then he talks about how you're going to use that word of God to teach others. So basically what he promises is if you'll change, if you'll come and you'll grasp hold of this 
word of God. Then I'll, I'll have you be a leader and a teacher, and you'll use that same word of God to lift others. In the King James, it sounds like you're going to beat somebody with that iron rod. In the JST, it talks about using the word of God as a tool to lead and to teach and to help, which I just loved. Um, and then he talks about how you'll do it. If you worry that you don't understand the word of God perfectly, or you may not be able to wield that, you know, that guidance very well, he promises ultimate guidance in 28, and I will give him the morning star. His promise is, if you're a leader in this church or a parent or somebody who has stewardship, you have a guidepost to always look towards. It's that morning star, that one that is the last to fade before the sun rises, that steady star will always be visible for you. That's his promise to us as well. No matter what your stewardship is, you have a steady morning star to look towards to guide you along that path. We get three more towns to relate to in chapter three, and also some of my very favorite verses of this whole week of study. We begin in Sardis. So if you go in the first few verses, they don't get a lot of praise in Sardis. They just get some correction right out of the gate because it sounds like they're struggling with kind of a shallowness of testimony. Their things aren't deep. They have the name of Christ taken upon them, but they're not living up to those baptismal covenants, maybe. And he's concerned for them. So his guidance in two is be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. I, I think this is a key teaching for every one of us, especially me. Like sometimes if your testimony feels shaky or you feel like, remember we've used that analogy a couple times now of this puzzle that I'm building of my testimony. And sometimes I've got this mystery pile of pieces over here that I'm not quite sure what to do with. And the best way I can find to actually find out where those pieces go is to continue to build the perimeter. If I continue to build those foundation understandings about you know, who I am, who God is, the gift of prophecy, Joseph Smith, all those things. If I build those foundations, then I have things to attach to. And that's, I think, his guidance to us is he's saying, lay hold, grab hold of what you know. Also, he tells you how. So he says in three, remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. I think this is important because oftentimes when I'm struggling to feel the spirit or get revelation, I get frustrated because in the past I have got revelation or some, I remember it coming easier than it is now. And oftentimes I'm not quite living the way I was. <laughs> and so the guidance I get is like, you need to be back at the temple more, or maybe you could improve your fast, or maybe, you know, like the thoughts that come into my mind on how I could do better, help refine me a little bit and say, okay, I need to remember how I got revelation, that it wasn't just that I got it, but there were things I did to increase my obedience in order to be more worthy of the, that gift. And I think that's his guidance there. And then in four, he says, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. What I like about this, you guys, is I feel like this reminds us that he sees you individually. Even if your family is a mess or your whole town is a mess or the world at large is a mess, he sees individual effort and he praises people for it. There's only a few people in this whole town that are not breaking their covenants. And that's what, that's what he means by this idea of like, they haven't defiled their garments. It means like they are living up to their covenants and he sees them and he promises that they will walk in white. I just, maybe it's from teaching my class this week. So I, when I was teaching what I say for my calling, we talked all about the stripling warriors. And one of the things I love about that story is I really think it's a story all about keeping covenants because those fathers chose to keep their covenants and not unearth their weapons, because the mothers kept their covenants and taught their children well, 
their sons were preserved. The blessings of their covenant keeping spilled into the next generation and the next. And I just think that's what he's trying to say here. He's like, I see you. I know how hard it is to keep those covenants in a place that is dark and hard. Uh, and it will be worth it. It, it. The blessings will spill over. And I just love that promise. Then he goes into the next city. It's called Philadelphia. And he has no no correction for these guys. They're doing, they're doing great. Maybe this is why it's called the city of brotherly love. Like it is just this understanding of like, you're doing awesome. Here's where you go next. What I think is powerful is even though he isn't, they don't need correction. They still need guidance towards where they're going to go next. Because even if we're doing great, you guys, when we come to the savior, he says, you're doing so great. Now let's move forward. Let's continue to move that goalpost so that you're coming closer and closer to who you're intended to be. And that's what you see to these saints. He just offers these beautiful promises, like what you see in seven and eight. These things he say, saith he that is holy, he that is true, and he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and has kept my word and has not denied my name. The visual that came to my mind and what I drew in my margins is that tomb with that huge stone that angels had to roll away. Like it is this door that he opened when, when he performed the atonement and was resurrected and offered this gift over all things is that that door will never be closed again. He's basically wedged a celestial doorstop. <laughs> and so no man can close the door of salvation. No matter how far off the path you think you are or your loved one is, no man can shut that door. That door will always be open. I just think that visual is so, so important <laughs> because sometimes we, we start to think it's closing or that we've lost too much time or we worry that we're too far gone. And the promise is, no, that doorstop is wedged in and this door doesn't close. As long as you choose to come to me, it will stay here and it will always be open to all men. And I just think that's a beautiful promise. In 10, he says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. I like this because we've been talking about covenants and keeping covenants. And I think that's one of the beautiful promises of covenant keeping is that you'll be shielded from temptation. Remember when I think it was Sister Jones who talked about having sin resistant souls, this idea of your covenants actually create a bit of a shield and a barrier against temptation. And that's something we want for all of our kids. So I love that you see that in there too. And then he promises that those who stand and choose will obtain this crown, this victory, this um, conquering that he will, he will bring them along in that victory. And I also love what he describes in 12, him that overcometh, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out. And I shall write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. This is his promise of an everlasting inheritance. It's that pillar that I love. I think what he's promising, at least this is how I took it is he's promising that is if you choose to be diligent, if you choose to hold tight to the word, if you choose to keep your covenants, I will need you to be a leader. I'll need you to be someone who urges others to do the same. When you think about a pillar, it's this, this immense permanent structure that holds weight, that distributes it between many pillars. You know, it's just this idea of like, you are someone who I will use to support the weight and to bring others close, to lift, to lift things so that people can come close. I just think the visual is powerful. When you go to the next 
town. He also doesn't have much praise for them. <laughs> Leodosia is, I think, how you would pronounce it, but we can probably go in the gospel library and find out the real, the real ways to say all these words. But basically, he has a concern for them because they kind of halt between two opinions. He calls them lukewarm. So if you go in the verse in like 15, I know thy works, and thou art neither hot, thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I just think this is such a powerful visual. You know, it is, they feel that their worldly goods and the wealth they've accumulated or the popularity they have or whatever it is, is filling them. And what he sees is what's below the surface, that they are emaciated and they are hollow and that it can't last. And I don't think he's, I don't think he's necessarily looking down on them as much as he is worried about them. You know, the same way you worry about your kids if they start to look unwell. And he's like, you, you're not seeing it. You're so covered with finery that you're not seeing how sickly you actually are. Let me heal you. I think that's the Savior's nature. It's not judgmental. It's like the great physician who says, this can't last. You are, you are winnowing away and let me help you. So then in this beautiful Christ-like gesture, he says, where to turn? To these emaciated, hollowed souls, he says, here's where you turn. In 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. His invitation to them is kind of like the invitation to the rich young ruler, I think, where he says, you're going to have to set all of this down in order to see yourself really clearly. It's going to be vulnerable. It's kind of like what we talked about walking in the light last week, this idea of when I walk in the light, I see all my flaws and all the places that I am weak and, you know, all those words, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what he wants them to see. He's like, the only way you're going to actually see what you really look like is to take all of that off and look with my eyes. And if you do that, then I can help you. In fact, in 19, he says, how? In 19, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. It's not too late for these saints. Even though they've rejected him and they've turned to worldly goods, he's like, come to me, come closer. And then he has some of those beautiful phrases in all of scripture in 20. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and I will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with the father in his throne. I loved in that same book from Michael Wilcox, he talked about chapter three has two doors. The first door is the one that he has propped open and it can never be closed by man. And we can come anytime without money and without price. This second door is like the door to our hearts and to our lives. And that one is often closed. But what is powerful to me is he doesn't, he doesn't wait till we're in a devastation state to say, I'm going to come and knock. No, he doesn't wait until we come and find his door because we're desperate. He says, I see that you're not well, and I'm going to come to your door and I'm going to knock. And if you recognize his voice and you know that he is a great physician who's here to heal, you'll open that door. If his voice is unfamiliar, you won't. <laughs> you know, I think all of us have this experience all the time when somebody's knocking at your door or, you know, your doorbell alert goes off and you're like, oh, I recognize that knock or, oh, I think I know who that is because you expect someone to come. If it's an unexpected voice or something you're not familiar with, sometimes you don't even get off the couch. <laughs> you just assume they'll leave. And that's his warning. He's like, you need to know me so that you know my voice. 
the other thing that Michael Wilcox mentioned in this about this verse is he said sometimes because there's so much mess on the inside we delay opening the door because we want to hurry and clean up the mess first. And what I think is important, the more I studied, the more I read, the more I realized that's why he came in the first place. We should never resist opening the door to the Savior because we're embarrassed or ashamed of the mess that is within. The whole reason he's at our door is so that he can help, which is why I love this idea of him coming with a supper. He's saying, I come to bring you things, to give you stuff. This happened all the time when Jason was in chemo, when people would come to bring us food. Like it, they had no judgment. They didn't care what my kitchen looked like because it was a total mess most of the time. And they just came and said, let me help. What can I do? And I think that's the savior stance as well. He, he doesn't just want to come and help and fix. He wants to come and help and fix and fill us with something that can last. The vision changes a bit in four and five. So you kind of want to get your bearings there. Basically, he's going to start giving us a view of the eternities. What I like about this is it reminded me a lot of what we studied in DNC section 76. You guys remember when we talked about the prices, right? So I, whenever I was sick and home from school, we got to watch the prices, right? For like hours in the morning. And I can remember so vividly watching the showcase showdown, you know, where they like open up those big bays and you find out there's a new car behind this one. And there was just a grill behind this one. And, but you don't know that until the very end after they've figured out, you know, what, what they've spun. What I love about the way the Lord does things is he essentially opens all those bays and says, I'm going to show you all of them. Section 76 is like that to me. It is all those bays opening up so that you can see exactly what the celestial kingdom is like. You can see what the terrestrial kingdom and the telestial kingdom are like. And you can say, I'm going to make an educated choice. I'm going to live my life based on what I see. And I think that's what John is trying to help us understand. Because in this part of his vision, he describes essentially the throne of God. Um, what's powerful to me is he also sees God the Father. He just doesn't describe him. So if you look in the verses, in one, it talks about how in the vision, he's invited to come up hither, and I will show you these things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. He describes him as a he and describes him as one, but he does not give us details. Unlike the Savior who he described with white hair and eyes like fire and feet like brass and God the Father is not described. What is described is who worships God the Father and what his throne is like and what that space is like, which I think is a really reverent way to talk about this revelation. I imagine this kind of divine encounter is hallowed ground, and John is very careful to... Maybe he can't articulate it. I don't know, but he, he describes the surroundings of God the Father. And it almost, for me, provided a way to triangulate who God the Father is. Because I can see what his surroundings are like and who comes to that area. And it helps you understand better what must be at the center. Without me actually seeing it, I felt like the Spirit could teach me things. It, it was really cool to study it. I hope you love it. Um, so he talks about that. For example, he talks about how a rainbow surrounds this throne. Where the Savior, we talked about how white light is this combination of all colors. In this rainbow visual, to me, what was cool is that's all those colors expanded. I mean, it's one of the coolest versions of light there is, right? That it's this, that light comes through water and it creates this gorgeous spectrum of color. It also has incredible allusions to the Old Testament and Noah and the flood. Remember that token that was promised, this mercy of God 
reaching out and touching the earth and caring for his children and keeping his promises. There's so many beautiful reasons you could have a rainbow near the throne of God. He also talks about the people who were there. Here's what I thought was really interesting. And this is just my theory. So just know this, this I could be wrong, but here's what I thought was fascinating. He talks about the seats, you guys. Like he talks about that there are chairs that are in the midst of the throne. If you look at the JST, you can see that there's some word changes there. And I found myself thinking like, why do we care about the chairs? <laughs> you know, like wouldn't you just talk about the people in the chairs? He does. He talks about the 24 elders who were there. He learned later that the, those 24 elders are people who are elders of this, these congregations. There's other things they could be, you know, symbols for. But what you learn through Doctrine and Covenants and what you read in these verses is that these are actual elders that it's possible that John even knew these elders from these various cities who have now crossed over and are now in some exalted state and at the throne of God. Why that was so fun to me is I wonder if the reason that John talks about the seats first. Like, let me read it for you. It says in four and round about the throne were 20 and four seats. And upon the seats, I saw four and 20 elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. If these are regular people who have been exalted, that John maybe even knew people who just served diligently in their callings, you know, like Elder Bednar talked about at conference, these people who are just diligent and did the work they needed and now are close to the throne of God. What I like is maybe the reason they're in those seats is because those seats are occupied by different people at different times. Sometimes I've pictured the throne of God as this permanent setting. And what I th what came to my mind as I was studying is this idea of maybe the people in those seats change based on the needs. Not that they're demoted in any way or anything like that, but I almost started to picture it like a high council room. A high council room has seats around a table and who occupies those seats varies all the time based on what meeting is happening. If it's a meeting about the YSAs, I sit in those seats. If it's a meeting about the high council in the state, Jason's in one of those seats. But the seats stay there and various people who are over a certain stewardship or concerned come and sit in those seats. That's what I started to picture with these 24 elders. That maybe the reason they're there is because John's getting revelation about their cities, about their people and their friends and their towns. And so God has them in the room. Again, this is just my theory, but I... I think it felt so familiar because that's what we see in our stakes. It's what we see in a ward council. It's what we see in, even if you look at the Instagram messages about the Quorum of the Twelve and where they meet or where the Relief Society presidency meets, like there is something about that. Here are the seats and here's who's in them right now. And this is who is diligently helping care for the people that we are talking about right now. For me, it just felt familiar and it made the throne of God feel more approachable. Um, and I think that's what the Savior wants us to feel, that the throne of God is approachable to those who have made themselves worthy and who come to me and seek my grace. Like th that's, that's what I felt as I studied. And then he talks about the surroundings of the throne of God. You can go in the notes and learn more. There's a lot in the Institute manual as well, but this idea of a sea of glass being before the throne of God and the lightnings and the thunderings that come from it. And I just think these are all beautiful visuals for the transparency that comes when you're close to God. There is, I don't think it's that the world is this flat marble. <laughs> May, I, who knows? I didn't go to this vision, but I don't think, I think the God who created this, you know, what, what we experience right now that is a lower level can only make things more beautiful and more glorious in a celestial level. So I don't picture it being sterile and flat and shiny. What I think this means is all things will be known. 
the, the earth will be transparent. You'll be able to see the earth's history. You can go in the notes and learn some quotes from Brigham Young and Joseph Smith who talk about this very idea that you'll be able to look at the earth because it's a sea of glass and, and know things, almost like a giant Urim and Thummim. Like you'll be able to know things. I don't think it's so much, remember, you can't get into your Nicodemus mindset. I don't think it's that we will live on a giant marble. I think it's that you will have wisdom and understanding of things you've always wanted to know. For me, the most hopeful part of that is not so much that I want to know about like when did dinosaurs happen and how did that shake out? And I think you also get to see all things in history. Like maybe we'll get to see up close the sacrifice with Abraham and what that walk to Mount Moriah looked like. Maybe I'll get to see Captain Moroni tear that cloak and write on it. Like I actually think when you have this transparency, you'll see all things. You'll see the heart of all people and see their choices and you'll see yourself more clearly. I just think it's a glorious promise. Uh, where before I kind of saw the sea of glass like a sterile, boring picture, now I see it rich and full of color and hope and anyway, I look forward to that day. So then he talks about the beast that surround the throne. Again, you can go into the notes and learn more about this. We learned about it in the Doctrine and Covenants as well because Joseph Smith also asks these questions. He wants to know what those beasts represent. And you can learn more about them, but basically these are representations of classes. There's a few different layers of learnings there, but I think these are all things who are glorious, who honor God. Beasts in this sense is very different than the beasts we're going to study next week, which are representative of the adversary. These are glorious creatures that are worshiping at the throne of God. And then you see this sweet interchange in 10. The 20 and four elders fall down before him and sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their, crown, their crowns before the throne saying, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things for thy pleasure and are and were created. To me, this is the witness that for all time, like all eternal time, we will revere God. Even though the Savior makes us joint heirs. We will always worship and honor God the Father. We will always, especially when we can see really clearly how his hand has blessed us and blessed our posterity and blessed all those people around us, we will see very clearly who he is and we will always worship him. Similar to other visions we've read about in scripture, this vision involves a book. So what John sees in the right hand of God is this book, probably a scroll is what most scholars teach, and that it's sealed with seven seals, those little wax seals that signify like authority, and this has to be opened by someone with authority. That's held in the right hand of God. And they talk about the desire of heaven to have that book opened. What we learn from modern revelation, like from Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and others, is that inside that scroll is the history of the world, basically. I don't think it's just a physical history, but a spiritual history and an understanding of what, from God's perspective, the history of man. And those seals all represent a thousand years of time. And so that's what everyone in heaven is hoping to have open. Remember, this is kind of where time folds on itself. <laughs> in chapter five, you sort of get a pre-mortal view of things and also allusions to what will happen in the future. So time is sort of folding. Basically what happens is John sees this book and hears everybody lamenting because they want someone to open it. They need an authorized, worthy person to open it. So if you look in the verses, it says in two, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. 
I hope this doesn't come off as irreverent, but you guys, the best visual for me for this was picturing that old Disney movie I watched as a kid, The Sword in the Stone. So do you guys remember that old, old Disney movie? Like it's, you see all these people come and try to pull that sword out and they, they can't, not because they're not muscly and strong, but because they are not worthy to pull that sword out of the stone. And people are lamenting in the kingdom because they know the promises that if that sword can be pulled, the world opens up and hope opens up. That's kind of the same thing that happens here in the book of Revelation because they're weeping because there isn't someone to turn to. And then someone basically taps on John's shoulder and says, watch what happens next. I just wish I knew who it was. It just calls him an elder. It says in five, and one of the elders saith unto me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. I don't know who this is and it probably doesn't matter, but I love this understanding of there are those who know the plan of salvation so well that they, they see what's coming. And then he directs John's eyes towards the savior. And what John sees is in the midst of all those elders, there was a lamb that stood as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. It's kind of a very confusing visual, right? Because first off you picture a meek lamb, one that has been slain or as it has been slain and it's standing and that's confusing. Then you add in the horns and the eyes and it's even more confusing. So you kind of want to go slow in that verse. It helps to read the JST. It helps to go in the Institute manual. But the thing that helped me the most is first, I love this visual of the lamb. I like that he's standing. I think there is a dignity in this moment. I think it is almost this perfect balance of condescension and choosing to do what is incredibly hard, um, to do the will of God in this moment and to be the person that can begin this process for the world is incredible. In fact, there's a beautiful talk from Elder Holland in the notes all about this, this idea of doing the will of the father and the weight of that choice for the savior and the gift that it is. It's incredible. You should go in the notes and read it. But he talks about that moment of dignity that when he chooses to take on all that pain that will come, the, all the struggle that will come, he is standing in dignity. And that I love. I also love the visual of the horns and the eyes, but it took me a second to love it because <laughs> I didn't understand it at first. What I learned is horns are a representation of power. Often in the Old Testament, we saw that, right? This idea of a horn being a, a way that you demonstrate power. It's just, it's attached to the head. So for me, if the horn is representative of the servants of God, those who are like apostles who are helping the Lord in his work, they are powerful. They do the will of God, but they are also firmly affixed to his head. So his head directs where that power goes. And especially if you read this in connection with what you find in D&C, we learn that that's talking about prophets and apostles, this idea of they are, they do have power and they have that priesthood ability to do his works here on earth, but they are directed by his head. The eyes are somewhat similar in that they see, especially if there's many, they see what others can't see. But again, they are directed by the head and they help things move forward. So I, that helped me understand it a little bit better. But it's this climactic moment in seven and eight that I just think is so powerful. So in seven, it says, and he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. He is the one who is worthy because he prevailed. That's what you see in verse five is that one who taps on the shoulder of John and says, keep watching. He says, Christ prevailed. Well, I think the reason I think this is important for me is sometimes I think because he is the only begotten of the father and the firstborn, that of course he's going to be the one that's worthy to pull out. <laughs> You're going to hold on to that scroll. But I think we have to remember that he chose this, that this is something that he, based on God's 
pattern, he demonstrates and gives you all knowledge and then says, you choose, you choose. And the Savior chose this role and chose to step forward and take that scroll and open it up for all the world. And then you see what happens in eight. And when he had taken the book and the four beasts and the four and 20 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. When the savior chooses to step forward and says, here I am, send me essentially heaven rejoices. I mean, it, I've, you know, I've been in the stadium, like the Buckeye stadium, when there's a critical touchdown that happens and you hear this roar of thunderous excitement that happens. I can't imagine what that's like on an eternal scale, but that's what John is trying to teach us. What he describes it as is a new song that breaks forth. Like it can't be contained, that kind of song. And that's what he says in nine. And they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Thou wast slain and thou hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made unto us our God kings and priests and we shall reign on earth. When the Savior steps forward, hope opens. That door opens, like things change for all the rest of humanity for all time. And we can't contain the joy that is like bubbling up. I just think there's so many beautiful references in scripture to this idea of bursting forth in song. I give you some in the notes if you want to learn more, but Isaiah has these incredible references to this. When we have enough gratitude for the Savior, we just burst out in song. Alma talks about singing the song of redeeming love and making sure that you're staying current on your covenants so that you can always sing that song. And one of my favorite references is from King Benjamin after his address. And he talks about how frail he is. You know, he says basically that the only reason he's standing there is because the spirit's helping him. And you know, he's at the end of his life. And what he talks about is his desire to go join the choirs of heaven. That's a mighty man like King Benjamin's last hope is that he can just go and join that choir. The reason I think we all want to be part of that choir is from what you see in 12 and 13. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, they all turn and they all honor him saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. This is that pivotal moment. What's so powerful about that is these are all the things that all those cities just got warned about. Not getting attached to power, not getting attached to wealth, not getting attached to honor and praise. Like he just taught all of them that they need to set all that down. What I think makes the lamb so worthy of our admiration and song is that he is able to hold all those things in his hands and not get contaminated by them. He can hold all power and not abuse it. He can hold all wealth to bless people and freely give it out. I think it's the same thing King, King Benjamin became so good at. And that's why he could teach us at the end of his sermon about the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. I think the Savior demonstrated as well. When you are like him, those things aren't a weight anymore. They are an opportunity to love and to bless. And I just think it's a gorgeous visual. And honestly, something we kind of have to hold on to this week, because next week we head into more of the symbols of the apocalypse, what's going to happen later and the wars and the strife and the tumult. What you want to remember always, and I think probably what I learned from Michael Wilcox the most is these moments of joy and singing, we should remember because this is why it's worth it. This is why we can make it through all the hard chapters that are coming because these moments of joy we want to be a part of. And that was a powerful thing for me.
Welcome back everybody. Time for the creative side of week 49. So my goal here, just like every other week, is to give you some creative tools to help teach some of these beautiful principles that John brought out in his vision and apply them to our everyday life. I'm also trying to be aware of the fact that it's Christmas time and you're swamped. So I'm hoping to give you very simple teaching strategies that you could use in your kitchen or in your classroom to help your kids come to know Christ a little bit better through the words of John. So I'm going to walk you through the intro first, and then I'll take in in more detail. For those of you who are in the course, um, I'll walk you through each one individually, and then also give you access to the notes and the printables so you can pull them off. But I think there's a lot of potential in this very visual week of study. <laughs> the first thing I want to tell you before we even get into the object lessons is to remind you that you have access to the archive. So for example, this week we hear over and over again this idea of a two-edged sword and that the sword comes out of the Savior's mouth. We studied that same thing in the Doctrine and Covenants and we made this awesome sword with a scaffold <laughs> to talk about that principle. I wanted to introduce that to you because now we've created a better way for you to find the archive of object lessons from the past. If you go to the new site, it's gather.mechamom.com and you log in as a subscriber, you'll be able to see the archive so much simpler than it was before. You'll also be able to like search so you could type in sword and see all the object lessons that pop up. Anyway, I just wanted to let you know that if these three object lessons don't grab you, there's probably dozens more in the archive that you can pull from. So go to gather.mechamom.com. You can find a whole bunch. But let me show you what we've got in store for this week. So first and foremost, I really loved that verse about the candlesticks, that visual of these bright shining menorahs that represent cities casting out light. Like I mentioned in the insights, I loved thinking about this when you think about Times Square this last week where they did that beautiful light the world and the stars like glistened all around all the billboards on Times Square. So I wanted to find some way that we could talk about light the world. You could introduce your kids to what happened on Times Square and talk about being part of this candlestick that our congregations are supposed to light up our individual spaces. So I'm going to give you some tips on how to do that with Light the World and some cool printables that we have in store there. The second one is to help you understand how to approach the book of Revelation. So we talked in the insights a little bit about how you kind of have to view things with a different lens. We don't want to get that Nicodemus or woman at the well very literal stance. We want to be able to see things in a more symbolic way. And one of the easiest ways to teach this actually was inspired by the introduction that I told you about that mentioned Nicodemus in Michael Wilcox's book. He talked about those magic eye puzzles that we used to have in the 90s. Uh, they're called stereograms. And basically when you fuzz your eyes a little bit, you can see things come out that you couldn't see otherwise. And we're going to demonstrate that for you. So we've pulled some cool stereograms that you can either show on a big screen or that you could print if you wanted and help your kids see how when you approach the book of Revelation with different eyes, things come to the surface. So I'll walk you through that one as well. The third one is a very popular game that we created for the Doctrine and Covenants that covered these same chapters, these same understandings. Remember when Joseph Smith was seeking understanding about what the sea of glass meant and what the eyes meant and what the wings meant. He wanted the Savior to explain what those symbols meant so he could teach well. And I think for us, that's really important as well. When we get our kids in that symbol mindset, then they look at things differently. They'll look at these verses differently. They'll look at their experiences in the temple differently. So I think helping our kids see symbols and understand them is rich ground for teaching. So the game is a really simple one. It was honestly one of the very most popular from this year. 
It's based on a game called Slapsy. If you happen to have that game, it's fantastic. I totally recommend it. It's a game that you see a bunch of symbols, you have them in your hands, and you're trying to match them with an associated category card. And I'll walk you through how to play it. But it's actually a really simple way to help your kids see that symbols can mean lots of different things. And that when we work together to try and understand things, we come to a clearer, crisper image of what was intended. And I think you'll see that in the book of Revelations too. So for that one, you don't need any supplies, just copy paper, cardstock, whatever you have on hand, and the printable, and you'll be all set. You guys have been with me for four years now, so you know how much I love Light the World. I just think the whole premise of it is so sweet, right? It's at the very beginning of December, we're going to put your mind square on the Savior and giving light as he gave. And we've done a bunch of different things in the course throughout the years. We've done a bunch on my site. And my hope with this first object lesson is that you'll just pick and choose where you can give a gift, a gift of your time, a gift of your money, a gift of your energy, whatever you can offer as a family or as a class, I hope you find an outlet for it. My hope for you is that you'll go seek through the sites. So the site that has the archive at, at gather.macmom.com, you'll have access to maybe not dozens, but tons, tons and tons of printables. Like for example, the service stars that our family put on a string one year and we, you know, did service and then marked, I think that service with a little star. Or if you want to go and download the giving machines that we made last year that have now been downloaded all over the planet, thousands of times, um, you can find those there and just do service for each other. Or if you want to just talk about the nativity story, you could go and grab the ones we made that demonstrate all the characters of the nativity, and then also tell you their attributes and how we can try to live like them. All those are available. There's a new one that's available this year that I just put out on Studio 5. I'm calling it Star Seekers, which is kind of a interactive game of sorts that you set up where you search for a star somewhere in your house. As you find it, then you open up a gift. And the gift is designed to be like an, a very common Christmas fun activity, like watching a Christmas movie together, playing a board game together. And then you tie those things into teachings about the Savior so that you're doing the things you would already do, but making them more meaningful. So my hope with this object lesson, you guys, is that you just take some time to sift through your options and find a way that you can give back. It's giving week on the chart already. And if you introduce yourself to the Light the World campaign, go look at the videos, watch what they demonstrate, or jump on the text thread and let the church give you some prompts throughout your week on how you can serve. I promise the Spirit will teach you where you should focus. There, there probably isn't one right way. There's probably dozens of right ways. So just find a way to do good and light the world. I think the image of being one of those candlesticks, either as a family or as a class or as a church as a whole, we offer his light to the world around us. And I think that's the whole premise of light the world. So go get to work. See, nothing too hard. I promise this is going to be a great week for you. The words of John are a little hard to understand, but hopefully with the help of the notes and so many prophetic commentaries on those verses, you'll have what you need in order to at least begin your study. Hopefully the Spirit can help guide you along just like it did with me. If you need extra help, you're welcome to join me on the live. So that's Monday morning, 10 a.m. I pop on Instagram and do a quick live to kind of chat through the various, um, you know, insights I couldn't quite fit in and also object lessons. If you have any questions or if you have comments about which light the world thing your family is going to do or your class is going to try, that's a good place to chat with me about it. But otherwise, I just hope you jump into the goodness of this season. I think what you read in John, especially about being a light and seeing his light more clearly will help soften the season for you. It'll help kind of shut down some of the commercialism side of things and help you focus on what matters most. I think you're going to love it. 
All right, you guys, enjoy your week of study and I'll see you on Monday. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.